judges take extreme but legal measures in cases involving transnational organized crime or terrorist organizations in order to protect people associated with the criminal justice system. And if the judge assesses, I would hope on the basis of intelligence from the marshal service and others that Trump's threats to individuals could result in violence, I think legally it could be upheld, especially for a repeat violation of the order. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with another edition of All Things Investigations. I'm thrilled to have back with me Kevin Carroll, partner at Hughes Hubbard and Reed. Kevin, first of all, welcome back. Tom, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Kevin, sometimes I think we need a daily podcast to cover this subject matter, but we're going to at least start to focus on two topics today and see where all of that go. First one we could probably call historical, given the timeline of everything Trump is doing. But that was, I thought, as disturbing information as has come out to date in all of his indictments about his allegedly discussing nuclear secrets in the form of nuclear submarines to an Australian national. And I guess I wanted to ask you, is this something that is much ado about nothing, or is this something that is, for the intelligence and military community, extremely important? Tom, it's as serious as a heart attack, and I'd like to explain why. I'm an Army Reserve colonel, but I acknowledge that our Navy's submarines are one of the most essential guarantees of America's national security. In World War II, 55% of the Japanese shipping that we sank was sunk by submariners. And submariners took a 20% casualty rate in World War II, the highest of any of the services, more than the Marine infantry, more than the paratroopers, more than the bomber crews. They were the most effective and suffered the most. What submarines do for us today is very, very important. One, they're essential to preserving the independence of Taiwan. The thought at the strategic level is that China can't defeat Taiwan if we have attack submarines with 24 torpedoes in them in the Strait of Taiwan blowing up their shipping. I think that's a reasonable assessment. Two, the submarines do enormous work in intelligence collection. They're excellent platforms for collecting tactical signals and tactical imagery intelligence. And they also insert and exfiltrate Navy SEAL teams, sometimes with CIA officers or CIA assets in tow. So they do amazing work there. And then most importantly, our ultimate nuclear guarantee is our strategic missile submarines, the boomers, as they're called. There's always at least a couple of these on patrol. Either of them can destroy the Soviet Union, Russia rather, or China. And so far as we know, our adversaries are not able to identify them and track them. So one of the reasons nuclear war has not broken out since the Russians got the bomb in 1949 is that 
any adversary knows that ultimately the United States will be able to destroy them in a retaliatory strike. So what Trump said was to this fellow, Anthony Pratt, an Australian billionaire who joined his country club was two things. He said exactly how many nuclear warheads are on a ballistic missile submarine, which is not that big a deal. But then he said exactly how close our submarines can get to Russian submarines without being detected. And I have top secret clearance. I don't know that because I don't have a need to know that. But it's obviously something that the Russians and the Chinese and others would be desperately interested to know so that they could change their tactics and that they could perhaps add some technology to their ships. So it was just incredibly irresponsible of Trump to do this. The Australians are among our closest allies, but this guy Pratt is not an Australian government official. He's just an Australian civilian. And apparently Pratt told other people what Trump told him. And we have no idea, perhaps the special counsel does, who those people were. Pratt might not even know who he's talking to. Foreign intelligence services are excellent at running what we call false flag operations, where somebody is pretending to be of a different nationality, where somebody with information might feel more comfortable to talk with. All of which is to say, what Trump did was outrageous. And I'm surprised that thus far the special counsel, Jack Smith, hasn't come back with an additional charge under Section 793D as in Dalt for willfully communicating classified information to someone unentitled. The current 42-count indictment is mostly about the willful retention of classified information because, as we know, he kept documents down there at Mar-a-Lago and refused on request to return them. But here we've actually got Trump communicating genuinely sensitive national defense information to an uncleared foreign national. And I think Smith should come back with a charge under 793D. Is there any remedy once the information is released or once the horse is out of the barn, can't put it back? There's no remedy. The horse is out of the barn. You can't put it back. And we're not going to do anything to one of their civilians to try to cauterize the leak here. So it's a real problem. Could you explain the intelligence relationship between the United States and Australia? So it's one of the closest that there is. The United States, Canada, Britain, New Zealand, and Australia are part of what are called the Five Eyes, which is basically the major British Commonwealth countries plus the United States. And we all coordinate on signals intelligence collection, for example. See, it's no secret that the National Security Agency has an enormous listening station in Australia to intercept communications in the Pacific, and that our imagery satellites also have relays that are going through places in Australia. So the relationship couldn't be any closer. For example, the CIA has officers that help train Australians and things, and we cooperate and have joint operations with the Australians all the time. But this guy, Anthony Pratt, was not an Australian government official. I just finished a review of the history of the United States Navy and your remarks on submarines, starting with this called the silent service in World War II, are absolutely spot on. I would have said their casualty rate was actually a little bit higher, 25 to 30%. But the submarine fleet today forms one part of the nuclear triad to protect this country and is really the ultimate defense because every nation knows whether what they do to the surface, no matter what they do to our missile strike force, no matter what they do to you guys in the Army, the submarines can deliver a punch that will knock one out. Plus, my father was a serving naval officer, so I always pay attention to that stuff. Let's turn to more recent events, which actually happened on Monday, October 16th, where there was one of the oddest hearings I've ever read about on a motion brought by a special counsel, Jack Smith, in the Washington, D.C. case. And 
the commentary, I haven't read the full transcript yet, but the things that were said to the judge, just almost, I couldn't believe an officer of the court would speak that way to a federal judge. But the end result was a limited, I want to emphasize limited gag order on President Trump not to talk about witnesses, court personnel, prosecutors, or potential jurors. First of all, what was your sense about the hearing itself? As you said, the hearing just went off the hook. I don't know what these defense lawyers are thinking, speaking to a federal judge that way. I'm sure that their client is pushing them to be as aggressive as possible. And of course, the defense counsel has an obligation to be a zealous advocate. You simply have to speak to United States District Judge with the respect that she deserves. And they did not record her that. One, it's a stain on their reputations. Two, there could eventually be some discipline regarding it. And I'm very glad that the judge came out with the order. We've seen how former President Trump's remarks have just become more unhinged and have targeted more people. For example, the law secretary to the New York State Supreme Court justice up in New York who's hearing the civil fraud trial. Again, making some completely spurious allegation that she had had underage sex with Senate Majority Leader Schumer. I mean, bizarro thing. Obviously, if President Trump has tens of millions of supporters, some of whom are armed, some of whom are violent, some of whom are mentally ill. And if he continues to attack people that are associated with the administration of criminal justice, one of them's going to get hurt. You can put federal marshals around the judge, you could put federal marshals around the prosecutor. But you know, as you start expanding this circle to, as you said, all the witnesses, all the jurors, the courtroom staff, it's impossible to devote the resources to physically protect all those people from lunatics. And so I think that the judge acted correctly in trying to get this back in the bag. I know there's been some criticism of her for including the prosecutor among the list of people that can't be criticized. And yeah, I was not a prosecutor. I respect prosecutors. Any prosecutor tends to have thick skin and is used to being called every name in the book by a defendant. But here, again, because the special nature of the threat, I think you have to be concerned about the prosecutor's family, friends, and neighbors. So barring him from the sort of just vituperative criticism that's coming from the former president was scout roof. First of all, I have to say, we know Trump will violate this order. And where can the judge levy a sanction that will either be meaningful, perhaps prevent the kind of damage and violence that he can decide that you've talked about. What I've seen judges do, which gets people's attention, is fines that increase geometrically and not just arithmetically for subsequent violations. The judge I clerked for had the case many years before I clerked for him of the uh, air traffic controller strike in 1981. They were barred from going on strike for good reasons related actually to the national defense and the strategic nuclear deterrent. And they decided to violate that order. And he had just some crippling sanction of, you know, you're fined $10,000 today, $100,000 the next day, million dollars the next day. I think that's the kind of thing that the judge could reasonably do. Some people think as a political matter that Trump wants to be incarcerated, that it'll make him more of a victim. And so, as you say, violate the gag order and repeatedly violate the gag order and do it in such a way that the judge has no alternative but to incarcerate. Could happen. Is that a viable strategy in the legal world? And I'm going to ask you about the political world in a minute, but in the legal world, that strikes me as a non-viable strategy. Judges take extreme 
but legal measures in cases involving transnational organized crime or terrorist organizations in order to protect people associated with the criminal justice system. And if the judge assesses, I would hope on the basis of intelligence from the marshal service and others that Trump's threats to individuals could result in violence, I think legally it could be upheld, especially for a repeat violation of the order. But I would hope fines would get his attention. Now let's move over to the political world. And I want to oppose it in terms of he obviously playing to his constituency, but is his attempt to use this to poison a jury valid in your mind? It's certainly trying to poison a jury pool. Again, it's a mixed matter of politics and law. I believe he only got 4% of the vote in Washington, D.C., which is a heavily Democratic town. So I'm not sure how many jurors he's going to succeed in changing any minds in the District of Columbia. In Florida, which used to be until recently a swing state, he's got much more of a chance of perhaps influencing a juror. Manhattan, where the criminal trial related to the hush money payments, overwhelmingly Democratic, although not as much as D.C. He's trying to poison the jury pool. And I think the only place where it might help him is Florida and also Georgia. Georgia was a swing state, although Fulton County is pretty Democratic. I can't remember which judge initially said this. I don't know who to attribute it to, but it wasn't the O.J. Simpson trial, but an equally dramatic trial that caught the popular imagination. And the response was, well, where do you want to try the case? Mars? So we have had very high profile cases. And I've always viewed the higher the profile, it's the responsibility of the lawyers in Fort Dyer to weed out yours with preconceived notions and who couldn't be fair and follow the judge's rules. Fort Dyer in simple contract cases. I've Fort Dyer in a number of cases, but I've always viewed that as the lawyer's job, no matter how high profile the client or the case. Is that a fair assessment in your mind? Yeah, I agree. Because there are some cases where it's just impossible to find a jury that hasn't heard about some of the facts. In the Oklahoma City bombing case, they did move it out of Oklahoma City and into Colorado because Oklahoma City is a fairly small town. And so a lot of people personally knew one of the large number of victims there. And I think that was a reasonable call. And that case happened to be prosecuted by Merrick Garland, the current uh, attorney general. He got a conviction and death penalty out of it for Timothy McVeigh, who was ultimately executed. In another terrorism case up in Boston, about the Boston Marathon bombing, they did not transfer it out of the District of Massachusetts. And one of the reasons that they gave was everybody in America knew about that attack, certainly everybody in New England. And there were a smaller, thank God, number of victims in that attack than there were in Boston. So it was possible to, in that in Oklahoma City. So it was possible to pick a Boston or a Massachusetts jury that didn't personally know a victim. And again, they got a conviction and a death sentence there that has not yet been carried out. I believe the death sentence has been overturned on appeal. So yeah, there's cases where you just have to deal with the fact, and O.J. Simpson would be another example, where everybody knows about some of the facts of the case. And in the O.J. Simpson case, one of the things that was done as a political matter, frankly, was to move, although it was in the same jurisdiction, I think they moved the courthouse that it took place at from Brentwood, which was an overwhelmingly white neighborhood, to a neighborhood that was more diverse because they were sensitive to the criticism that the trial for the Rodney King beating took place in Simi Valley, which was an overwhelmingly white suburb of Los Angeles, as I understand it. Kevin, 
Unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. The one thing I am sure is we'll have further topics to discuss in this. I wanted to thank you again. Look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks so much, Tom.